right, we're going to continue in our series called the Apprenticeship Masterclass as we continue our way through uh, the fourth gospel, the gospel of John. And if you have your Bibles or it will be on the screen, you can cha- or, uh, flip to John 16 and we'll start in verse 4. says this, but I have said these things to you that when the hour comes that you may remember that that I told you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I go away, the helper, if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. This is God's word. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. You know, I, uh, I recently was uh, introduced to an article from this journalist uh, who is originally from the Middle East. Uh, and it was fascinating. And so I wanted to share it with you. She writes this. In the East, and in the Middle East, I'll call both the regions the East, she says, the collective is primary. Each person in the East must consider the effect of his or her speech, beliefs, actions that have on each other collectively. Eastern cultures are honor and shame cultures. Individuals will speak act and believe in the ways that bring honor to their communities and to avoid shame. Truth is important but should be swept under the rug if embracing or even entertaining it would bring shame. Now a mixture of innocence and guilt, honor, shame runs through the West and through the East. In the West, an individuality and the innocence guilt paradigm have been dominant while the collectivist honor-shame paradigm has been recessive. But the rise of cancel culture, the honor-shame paradigm of social engagement is becoming more and more dominant in the West. Today's cancel culture, she says, is the 21st century Western version of the Eastern honor and shame paradigm. Easterners are better Added and only because they've had centuries of practice, but Westerners are trying to catch up. See, in our culture today, there's this thing that we, I'm sure you have heard, unless you've been living on a rock, uh, this idea of cancel culture. A single mistake that perpetually is unforgivable because it's not, simply a, a, it's not simply a guilt act, rather mistakes define the individual's identity, turning them into a shameful person, someone who should be canceled. And our culture's remedy 
for the brokenness and the sin that is so evident in our lives and in our world is to put a big C on your chest and say you're canceled. Or in other words, to bring it in biblical terms, you're condemned for the mistakes that you have made by identifying you with your actions and with your beliefs. It's no wonder that the number on anxiety and depression are at an all-time rise, especially among our students. Because when apologies aren't enough, where do you turn other than total surrender to what the culture wants you to believe and say? See, in cancel culture, we are defined by our latest mistakes. And the reality is that social recovery is rare because the critic and the judge is society. But when the rest of the world condemns, what we are going to see in our text today is Jesus introduces a different way. When the culture puts a C on your chest and identifies you by the things you have said or the mistakes you have made or the beliefs that you carry, when the culture puts a C on your chest, Jesus introduces a different way, a kingdom kind of way. And what he's going to say is that the Spirit of God cannot come without me leaving. And as we read today in chapter 16, of course, we see the scene is set up. His disciples are hearing this maybe for the first time. And his disciples aren't fully grasping the significance of what this means for them and for the world. But he's trying to get them to see the silver lining because they're fixated on the, this idea that, man, Jesus, the work had just started. The ministry's off to a great start. We got all this momentum. This ministry is growing. If you can imagine, he's got probably dates on the calendar for speaking engagements, and he's got a huge following, and they're like, this is just getting started, and now you're saying you're going to leave, and Jesus is trying to get them to see that this idea of him leaving is actually better for them and for you and for me. And in verse 8 through 11, Jesus is revealing these new three promises of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Today, we're going to focus here on one, but in John 16, 7, it says, If I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. That word helper is translated parakletos. I think that's how you say it. Um, it's about as close as I can get for you. But a better translation of that Greek word that I may have just butchered um, it might be more, uh, a better translation might be more of a legal, the legal form of a counselor in a courtroom, right? Because when the spirit of Jesus, what he's saying is, is he's going to change your mind and transform how you view sin. When Jesus says, I'm going to send the helper, and he's going to come, and he's going to convict the world of sin, what he's saying is, he's going to change your mind. He's going to transform the way you view sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, the Holy Spirit, who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the third person in the Trinity. This doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is in last place. 
but he is a person who comes with power. A lot of times we think of the Holy Spirit as a force or just of power, but he is a person. He is a he. So when we pray to the Holy Spirit, we use that sort of language, that he is coming, that he will do this, that he will come in power. And John 14, 26 says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance all that I have said to you. And then in verse 8 of our text today, when he comes, and this is going to be our focus today, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Conviction. That word convict, in other words, means rebuke or to expose the world concerning sin. But the reality is that we don't like being confronted with what is wrong with us, right? We're Westerners. We got it all together. And I remember spending, I've spent years justifying my sin and making excuses. I'm not really that bad most of the time. I'm getting better. I'm, maybe I'm just overthinking the situation here. But no matter how many excuses I could conjure up, um, I'd always end up facing the reality, reality that I still fell short and that I was still a sinner. And the conviction is this harsh reality that, and a reminder of my failure to get better. But what I was doing was I was confusing conviction and condemnation. So we avoid conviction, but what happens is when I avoid conviction, when you avoid conviction... What happens is that we, in return, we cover up our sin and fill it with our own righteousness. So we avoid conviction. But what Jesus is saying is that when the counselor comes, the Holy Spirit, the helper, he is going to convict you of your sin because conviction is not condemnation, it's liberation. Conviction is, leads to liberation, not condemnation. See, the reality is that we cannot turn away from what we do not know, and conviction introduces us to our sin. It's the first step in the process. It's the first moment where Jesus begins, or the Holy Spirit begins, to tug on your heart and to say, listen, through the lenses of the Old Testament law, your righteousness is actually what is killing you right now. We're going to get a little bit more into that next week. But what he's trying to show you is all the good stuff you're trying to do, all the good deeds and all the things you're trying to do in order to get me to look at you or to earn my favor or to make you, yourself feel better, all of that is causing more and more of the cycle of death that is happening in your soul. And in order for us to come to, from death to life, because sin isn't just something we did and it makes us bad, sin makes us dead. Amen? Amen? And in order for us to come alive in Christ, the first step for you and for me is to see our sin for its ugliness. 
And so we cannot turn away from what we do not know, and conviction introduces us to sin. Quickly, what is sin? Sin is, here's a couple ideas just to be helpful. Sin is a willful action. Sin is a failure to trust God's definition of what is good, right, true, and beautiful. Sin, I love this one, sin is the disturbance of our shalom. That word shalom is an Old Testament word that means peace and wholeness. It's the orig- what, what God originally intended for creation is shalom. And St. Ignatius says, sin is an, unwilling, an unwillingness to trust what God wants is our deepest happiness. See, the truth is that we're all slave to something. And maybe a more helpful picture for you and for me is that we are controlled by sin. And this is why Paul in Romans says this, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. The aim of conviction is to make you a slave to God. But we need that moment of turning. And sometimes we need pain that comes with it. So, we actually, so that we actually turn from our patterns of sin. Sometimes that you and me need to experience the bottom of the barrel in order to see the ugliness of our sin and come alive to the beauty of the gospel. Sometimes you and I need to come face to face with the reality that what I'm into, that what I'm doing, that my patterns of life up to this point is just leading me to a place of death. How many of you have been in a place where you're, you're like, I feel so controlled by this sin, by this habit, by this thing that I'm into? You don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have felt that way or have said those words? Paul in his second letter to the Corinthians said, makes it clear in his second letter, he talks about how he does not regret sending the previous letter that caused them grief. In other words, I sent you the first Corinthians, the first book, um, and I know that that caused you grief. But then he goes on to say, your sorrow led you to repentance. I had to point out where you were incorrect and the what you were thinking about God and how you were operating in a life with God. And so now I see that you're sorrowful, but I rejoice because your sorrow led you to freedom, not condemnation. And even though the Corinthians went through a difficult period when confronted with their sin, Paul assures them that their sorrow is good because of where it leads. He says in in chapter 7, verse 10, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. And I don't know who needs to hear this today, but maybe for you, you need, for the first time, need to experience godly sorrow because worldly sorrow is only leading to more death. Maybe for you today, you're sleeping with your girlfriend or you're looking at that thing 
or you're stuck in a pattern of sin and you know it and you've just said, I'm going to, I'm sorry, but you keep doing it. Maybe for the first time, the Spirit of God might say to you, you need to experience godly sorrow that leads you to repentance. Bring it to the light. That's godly sorrow. Bring it in front. Confess. That's godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is redefining our righteousness for ourselves. I love what Andrew Murray says, the great pastor and theologian and author. He's no longer living, but he says this. I love it. The first work of the Spirit remains to the end, the undertone of all his confronting and sanctifying work. It is only as he keeps alive the tender sense of the danger and shame of again sinning that the soul will be kept in its low place before God, hiding in Jesus as alone in its safety and its strength. And as the Holy Ghost reveals and communicates the holy life of Christ within, the sure result will be a deeper sense of the sinfulness of sin. In humility, we do not ignore the truth of our sin. In godly sorrow, we do not ignore the truth of our sin, nor the guiltiness that comes along with it. But in those realities, we hold tightly to the gospel. So it's not godly sorrow beating you up. It's godly sorrow leading you to liberation and freedom and to the life that God has for you and for me. And that the perfect Jesus saves broken people. And so not only does conviction lead us to liberation and not condemnation, conviction also leads us to right belief. Paul in Romans 1 verse 18 says this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and, and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And what Paul is literally saying is, it's almost like, and who he's speaking to in the moment, it's almost like you're putting a blanket over God's truth for your life and you've redesigned righteousness for yourself to fit the lifestyle you want and because of that, the wrath of God is against you. And in the West, because we don't like this idea of, uh, of something inherently wrong about us or this idea of death or the wrath of God coming uh, down on us, we've regarded sin less like death and more like a stain. A stain on the soul that can be wiped away with the right amount of grace, which produces then this view of grace as medicine or some sort of cleanser in our lives. But the layers of sin are deeper than a cut that needs to be treated. Sin equals death, and you can't treat a dead man with cleanser. You need a miracle. If sin is just a stain, then all you need to do is wipe a little cleanser on the stain and get rid of it, right? But see, a low view of sin produces a cheap view of grace. 
and will keep you in the endless cycle of putting grace on your wounds and failing to see the holistic reality of grace and walking into the actual freedom that God has for you and for me. And so some of you are asking the question right now, how do I get out of this sin that I just feel so enslaved in, so trapped in? And maybe you need to ask yourself, are you treating your sin as a wound, not as death? Ultimately, Satan, who is behind sin, is not trying to get us to fall in love with him, but us to fall in love with ourselves. Now, I'm going to do something, maybe for the first time in church history. I'm going to quote a Satanist, okay? Uh, just for a moment, and then we'll quickly get him off the, off the screen uh, here. But Anton is, uh, he leads uh, one of the Satanist churches, I believe, uh, somewhere in Europe. But I came upon this quote, and it, it just fits perfectly with the, uh, the things. But we'll get him off quickly. Here we go. He says this, we don't worship Satan, we worship ourselves using the metaphorical representation of the qualities of Satan. We don't worship Satan, we worship ourselves. You can get him down now. Let's go to what Jesus said, John uh, chapter 16. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me. The lack of unbelief leads us to have to believe in something, which then leads us to believing in ourselves and becoming worshipers of ourselves, as Anton said. His strategy is simple, distract you with an inflated view of you. Distract you with an inflated view of you. Dallas Willard uh, says that we need images that, we, we have images that empower wrong ideas. And because of the confrontation with our failure, a conviction can lead to either humility or shame when we view conviction in the wrong lens. Shame stays focused on our failure, right? It sees only the brokenness that we have, and that's why Satan wants you to be self, the self-made man or woman, uh, because if he can distract you and convince you that you aren't broken, you'll never see God. So we need right belief, the images of God to worship God, to enter into the shalom that the Bible promises for you and for me. Dallas Willard goes on to say, the process of spiritual formation in Christ is one of progressively replacing those destructive images and ideas with the images and ideas that are filled or filled the mind of Jesus himself. And this is why in our text today that Jesus is saying to his disciples, listen, I get it. I know you're confused. I know you're sad and you're grieving. What I am telling you right now, when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to replace these false images that you have of me and for the rest of the world, the misunderstandings that you have of yourself and of me. And it's like in Matthew chapter 16 when Peter just goes on. He's on top of his game. He just said that Jesus is Lord and he immediately Satan or uh, Jesus throws them back and calls him Satan. Peter acknowledged that Jesus was the promised Messiah. You remember this? If, if you've been in church for a little while, uh, the story goes, he, uh, 
He calls Jesus the promised Messiah, the anointed Savior of humankind, but then rebuked by Jesus for saying he was going to suffer and urged uh, that such things must never happen. In other words, Jesus says, I'm going to suffer. And Peter's like, Messiah, no, no way you're going to suffer. I rebuke what you're saying. And the Messiah was this idea with a content and associated images in Peter's mind totally different from what Jesus had come for in his mission on earth. Jesus then called Peter Satan because Peter was thinking in human terms, not on God's terms. Jesus exposed Peter's false images and his wrong belief about the Messiah so that he can one day see that Jesus isn't bound by our limited view of him. So in order for us as the church in the 21st century, to be an alternative community in the world, a faithful witness in the world of liberation and hope, we need to be able to discern the forces that attempt to place distorted images of the life that God has for us that, that also want to establish the idols of our hearts. We have to resist and replace them. And this is why David prays in the Psalms, Psalm 139, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way and lead me in the way of everlasting. In other words, see if there's any distorted images of you. Get rid of them and lead me in the path of truth and righteousness. Amen? This submission of our hearts to the Lord as the Spirit comes and he convicts you and me and the searching of the Spirit can function as sort of this like spiritual MRI. Revealing the motives of our hearts below the surface of our behavior. And then repenting of those things, seeking the spirit to cleanse us and to give us the right belief or right images about God and ourselves. So the gift of conviction leads to liberation, not condemnation. The gift of conviction leads us to right belief, to the right images that God would have for us. And lastly, the conviction of the Holy Spirit leads you and me to surrender. See, spiritual formation, this idea, and we talk about this a lot here, and, and really the language that we put around this is our apprenticeship practices. And our goal with the apprenticeship practices is that we are formed and imaged um, into the image of Christ. That's really what we're doing. As we talk about these practices, all of them, they are meant to be placed in our life, these practices, in order to place us in a in position of imaging God to the world. And so that's why we talk about them a lot. And, and that's really, that's the, our, our verbiage for spiritual formation. But spiritual formation is this great reversal from being the subject of, uh, to the enemy who controls all other things to being a person who is shaped by the presence, purpose, and power of God in all things. So maybe you've said to yourself this past week, you just need to pray more. Come on, man. Like, go to church, read your Bible, 
Be more obedient to God. Deal with the unconfessed sin in your life and everything will be fine. This is like telling a person with a broken leg that they just need to run more and strengthen their muscles. Our spirituality is not an add-on. It's the very essence of our being, amen? But our culture has conditioned us to think that when we have something we need to change, that we need to do something. Spiritual formation does not begin with finding out a bunch of information about God and then applying them. The Spirit of God is going to show you, convict you, convince you that your choices and what you're surrendering to is what's getting in the way of knowing true shalom. So our apprenticeship practices are not what is going to get us to true shalom. Our apprenticeship practices are what is meant to couple with or to come alongside with the work of the Holy Spirit that is already going on in our lives. So spiritual formation does not begin at at, at finding a bunch of information about God, but applying them. See, Jesus commands us to follow him, which is a command to align our loves and our longings with his. To want what God wants, to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God and crave a world where he is all in. God isn't after your behavior first, he's after your heart. And this is exactly why he brings, he sends the Holy Spirit not to correct our behavior, right? Get us into new lifestyle choices first, but to bring conviction to the heart, to reveal the ugliness of our sin. But the challenge of our day is we live in an age that in Matthew 24, Jesus describes like this, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and I will lead them, um, and and they will lead many astray. Excuse me. And when many fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and because of lawlessness uh, will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. There is a danger and deception that is very real in our world today. We have religious leaders defining religion on their own terms and practicing lawlessness. We live in a secular culture that is redefining what God, uh, what is good, right, true, and beautiful. And if we're not surrendered to the God of the Bible, we will be swept up under the tides of the cultural narrative and the lawlessness of religion. I was introduced to an article uh, in the New York Times. It's an op-ed. It's so well written. I love the title. It's, it's The Empty Religions of Instagram. The Empty Religions of Instagram. To me, it just shows that there is a longing in all of us for something more, isn't there? Something greater, something grander than this inst- instant gratification of self that we've all been swept into. The author writes this. Many millennials who have, been, who have turned their backs on religious tradition because it is sufficiently diverse or inclusive have found an alternative scripture online. Our new therapy, 
wellness, astrology, and Dolly Parton. It's amazing. Shout out to my wife, big Dolly Parton fan. I have hardly prayed to God since I was a teenager, but the pandemic has cracked open inside me a profound yearning for reverence, humility, and awe. I have an overdraft on my outage account. I want more moral authority from someone who isn't trilling a memoir or calling out her enemies on social media for clout. Left-wing secular millennials may follow politics devoutly, but the women, and this is a woman speaking, by the way, but the women we've chosen as our moral leaders aren't challenging us to ask the fundamental questions that leaders of faith have been wrestling with for thousands of years. Why are we here? Why do we suffer? What should we believe in, in beyond the limits of our puny selfhood? So well written. There's a longing deep within us for more than what the world is offering. And the spirit of God has come to expose the systems of society and says that this is what, it's re- what was really going on behind the scenes. They are not here to help you. They're after your soul. And I feel this. Do you feel this? The sense of urgency that just pulls on our heart and soul every day. If I'm vulnerable with you, the past few weeks, I have been nonstop anxious. Now, I struggle with mental health my whole life, and this has been an issue for me for a long time. But what I noticed as I was studying for this this week is I've been on Instagram too much and my soul hurts. I want liberation from the limits of my puny selfhood. And the problem is that so many of us are looking in the wrong places. If your love story is based upon yourself, what the conviction of the Holy Spirit is inviting you and me into is to enter into is reordering our loves and trading our love story for ourselves for a new love story to bring you to a place of complete surrender to the story of redemption and the God of love who has come to save the world. Our text today Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. But if I go, I will send him. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. In other words, his ways have been exposed by the Spirit of God in our lives. A couple weeks ago, I was dealing with this, and I'll wrap it up here. I was dealing with this sort of negative narrative in my mind about someone, and I was just feeling left out. 
And so you know how it goes. You beat yourself up a little bit because you did something wrong or, or maybe I said something I shouldn't have or whatever it might be. And my mind starts attacking me and saying this old narrative that someone said to me years ago that, Joe, you're just so needy. And that's stuck with me for so long now. And I started praying and asking God, God, help me not to be such a needy person, right? Has anyone ever prayed that other than me? Help me stop being so needy, right? Like all, all that. And I was praying that morning and I, I, I had to read this book for, for seminary. And we're going over kind of an emotional health book. And I read this part in this chapter. It just, it's like God cracked open my heart. And, and through this author, Chip Dodd said this. Openness will take you to a fuller, richer living through relationship. To acknowledge the truth is to become vulnerable to your heart. And then he says this, vulnerability exposes neediness. I'm just praying this that morning. Vulnerability exposes neediness, and neediness can lead us to seek and knowing others and God. And I'm like, are you kidding me? What God did in that moment, and really this is the conviction of the Holy Spirit in my life, what God did in that moment was turned it around and showed me how my weakness is actually my biggest strength. And that it leads me to my dependence and surrender and more liberation on God. The Holy Spirit exposed my heart and placed me in a position of vulnerability. So I texted that friend. I got a lunch with that friend. I told him what was going on. And now our relationship is better than ever. But the Spirit of God is inviting you and me today to take off the big sea of condemnation from our chest and heed to the Holy Spirit showing you that there is a world of difference between what you did and what he says you are. It's like that sweet woman who was caught in adultery and the Pharisees bring her to Jesus' feet. With condemnation and cancellation in their eyes, She's broken, probably half naked, if not fully naked, in front of these men. And they come up to Jesus, these religious leaders of the day, and said, essentially, this is Joe's version, what are they going to do? What are you going to do with her? And Jesus exposes the sin in their life, picks this beautiful woman up. tells her, I don't condemn you. And says, go sin no more. And so what God is saying to you and to me is, you can take the big C off your chest today. I've seen it all. I know it all. And I too don't condemn you. Church, go and sin no more. Cancel culture and condemnation wants to knock you down, but the conviction of the Spirit wants to pick you up, to plant a new heart. And maybe for some of you, this is the first time you've ever heard this kind of message. So I want to invite you also to stand up and to go and sin no more. Amen? A couple next steps as we leave today, as we wrap up. The reality is, 
when the Holy Spirit convicts you and me, what he's looking for is that first yes. So what's your yes? I need to forgive more. I need to surrender. I need to repent and turn from my sin. Maybe it's just I need to meditate on scripture more. I've been out of the word for so long now. And so spirit of God, I say yes to you and what you're speaking to me right now, I wanna step into and say yes to what you would have for me. Or maybe for you, it's saying yes for the very first time. And Jesus is calling you through the power of the Holy Spirit and what he's done on the cross and the resurrection. And now as he has ascended to the throne of God, he is calling you. And maybe for you, it's you've come into church and you've just come here and you're hoping to get lunch out of it, you know, towards the end and all that. Maybe for you for the first time today is to say yes to walking and following and becoming an apprentice of Jesus. We want to help you in that journey. We're going to have some pastors on the sides uh, here if that is you. We want to give you a gift and and a helpful tool uh, to be able to walk and apprentice Jesus alongside of you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your gift of conviction that leads us to liberation, not condemnation. That leads us to a right belief that helps us to see our distorted images and to correct them and to walk properly with you. Father, I pray that for those of us who maybe have come into this place with different images of you, or maybe a low view of grace and a cheap view of sin. Would you correct us, Spirit of God? Move in our hearts. And from this day forward, help us to stay in step with you, as Paul said. And as we take communion, Father, help us to be reminded of what Jesus has done on our behalf to be able to say we have the gift of the Spirit and he has come. In Jesus' name, amen.